on Tuesday of this week, I put a post on the Edgewood Facebook page, knowing that it is God who draws you to himself in salvation, could you share what method or means God used to bring you to faith in Christ? Here are a few of the responses. A beautiful Christian mother. Here's the next one. When our second child was born with health, a health condition, she had surgery at three days old. This made us start thinking about what happens if she doesn't survive. At the same time, one of my husband's co-workers was witnessing to him. We both were led to the Lord by this friend. This person said, multiple volunteers with our youth ministry demonstrated unconditional love to me, and it really started the process, but a sermon on Daniel chapter 3 was when I decided to follow Christ. This person writes, foundations planted in me at Sunday school, vacation Bible school, and churches whenever my mother could get us to go. Listen to this next one. Pregnancy at 16 and seeds planted by an uncle who was a pastor. For five years, I struggled with the thought that I was doomed. I didn't want that for my children, so I started attending church when I was 21. Someone from this church shared the gospel with me. This person writes, I was saved at a Campus Crusade youth rally under Billy Graham's preaching. And this person said, my parents faithful attendance in a Bible-preaching church. I'll never get tired of hearing how God saves people. Open up your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in front of you. Feel free to use that. We're going to see how God uses many methods to get his message out. Last weekend, we learned this truth. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. So in the first part of Acts chapter 16, Paul and his team traveled from town to town to visit new believers. And we read in verse 5 that the believers were strengthened in the faith and they grew in numbers. Well, let's pick up the narrative, Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So they had smooth sailing. They had the wind at their back. The team made great time. Philippi was a Roman colony located in Greece where many Romans settled. It was known as Rome away from Rome. And the reason Romans settled there is because they had no taxes. Imagine that, right? So Paul and his companions utilized three different methods in this chapter with three different people. First, they speak with a religious woman and then a rejected teenager And then finally, a regular guy. And my guess is you know some religious people who don't know Jesus. And chances are good that you can think of a person right now who feels rejected, abused, used, discarded. 
And there's no doubt you can think of a bunch of regular people just going through life, just going through the most motions. And God wants to get a message to each of these types of people. But first, he prepares messengers like us to send their way. So first, let's consider this religious woman. Paul and his team arrived in Philippi, and remember, they're expecting to find a man. Remember, they had a man from Macedonia in a vision said, come over and help us. Verse 13 describes what happens and happened, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, according to Jewish law, a synagogue could only be established if they had 10 committed men, but since Philippi did not have a lot of Jewish people, a group of women met down by the river at a praying place, or we might even call it this makeshift chapel. By the way, the Bible's filled with examples of women who were greatly used by God. Think with me of Rachel and Sarah and Shifra and Pua and Deborah and Hannah and Esther and Ruth and Elizabeth and Mary and Martha and Priscilla and Phoebe, just to name a few. So in that culture, women were treated as property, as second-class citizens, but Christianity elevates women to a much higher status. Now, it was important for them to be near water so they could ritually wash their hands before prayer. And these women gathered to recite scripture. They read from the law and the prophets, and they, they discussed what they read, and they prayed. On occasion, they would listen to a traveling teacher who would come by and give an exposition or an exhortation. We see that in the last half of verse 13, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. That word for speak is not the word for preach. It refers to this natural conversation. I picture this as what goes on in our growth groups every week. We have growth groups that meet during the week in homes and a lot of groups that meet here Sunday morning and meet to learn the scriptures, to discuss, to encourage one another, and to pray. And we have some new electives starting soon. Verse 14 introduces us to one of these worshiping women. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Lydia was from a town that was made famous for making purple dyes. And these dyes were very expensive because they came, it came from shellfish. She was probably in charge of a branch office in Philippi. Purple was the color of royalty. She, no doubt, was a very successful businesswoman who was also a worshiper of God, which meant she was a Gentile who had not yet fully converted to Judaism but was sincerely seeking the one true God. Listen, she was religious, but she was not redeemed. She was praying but had not yet discovered who God was and had not yet responded to the gospel. Well, as she's listening to the words of these messengers, the last part of verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
Don't you love the relationship between how God does his work and our responsibility to believe? And so God opened her heart, and he did so as she listened to his word. That phrase, pay attention, literally means to curb the ear. It's like she's leaning forward to hear what Paul wants to say. One of my favorite things about Edgewood is how you come and gather here, and some of you are gathering uh, online, where you come and you're like, I want to know God's word better. Some of you even lean forward. Some of you even take notes. We have sheets for taking notes that are out in the lobby. Some of you are taking notes. Why? Because you want to learn. You want to grow. You want to get to know God better. Now, let me make the obvious point. Here's Lydia, a busy businesswoman who did not give up meeting with others on the Sabbath. She could have slept in. This was her only day to catch up. Or she could have done paperwork in her office or headed to the lake. Well, instead of playing, she was committed to praying. And she followed the admonition of Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Some people get out of the habit of meeting together. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I like how one church summarizes the importance of gathering weekly. They say it in one short sentence. Discipleship begins by showing up. Now, God is sovereignly at work behind the scenes, even when we're not aware of it. So think think of this in worship. Think about how God put Lydia and Paul together. She was from Thyatira. That's western Turkey God brought her to Philippi in Greece. Paul had tried to go to Turkey, but was prevented from doing so and was led to Philippi by a vision of a man from Macedonia. So God orchestrated an encounter by a river so that Lydia could hear the message from Paul and get saved. Our responsibility, friends, is to simply share the word of God wherever we are with whoever we're around as we have opportunity. It's God's job to open hearts. 1 Corinthians 3 says, I planted, this is Paul writing, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Listen, God will purposefully position you to be with people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he wants you and I to share that word. Question, do you know any religious people? Yeah, you do. Oh, would you tell them that God is more interested in a relationship with them than he is in having them jump through religious hoops? There are religious people all around us who are searching for God, but they have not found, that, found God in religious ritual. Sit down and speak to them. Look for ways to serve them. Intercede for them. Invite them to church. After Lydia's conversion, verse 15 tells us that she and her members of her household were baptized in the river. 
at its most basic level. Baptism is a public declaration of an inner decision. So after being saved, she wasted no time in outwardly identifying herself with her Savior. In the book of Acts, when you read baptism, here's the order. This is always the order. Belief first, baptism follows. You never see baptism and then belief. Once you're born again, your next step is baptized, to get baptized. And our next opportunity will be the end of November right here. Now, because the Lord opened her heart to believe, she publicly identified herself as a believer through baptism. She did something else. She opened her home for hospitality. Notice verse 15. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She wanted to use her home as home base so they, she could provide rest and refreshment to the traveling team. By the way, when you read the book of Philippians, that's written to the church at Philippi, that church hosted in Lydia's home. And hospitality was a strategic ministry back then, and it remains so today. Question, how can you open your home, your apartment, your dorm room, to someone this week? Well, here's a personal question. Have you been trying to live a religious life, but you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ through the new birth? Oh, would you listen to the Lord, and when he opens your heart, repent and receive him? And so we're learning that God uses many methods to get his message out. Let's look next at a rejected teenager. After seeing how God saved a religious woman, Paul and his team are led to someone who felt rejected. Let's pick it up in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Lydia was used to making a profit. This girl was used for profit. This teenager was one of more than 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And we read that she was controlled by a spirit of Satan. The Greek term is she had a python spirit. And this referred to how a demon enabled someone to predict the future. Historians tell us that they would often display that possession by the rolling of their eyes, by foaming out of their mouth, and their hair flying around. We might say she was a psychic or a medium. This teen was rejected for who she really was and was exploited by a group of unscrupulous owners. Now, she gets under Paul's skin. Why? Because she kept on following them. And here's what she shouted out. She said, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, what she says is true, but it's starting to distract Paul from his mission. And likewise, Satan will do anything to sidetrack us, sidetrack us from what we've been called to do. Verse 18 tells us she kept this up for many days. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The word annoyed, well, it means he was worn out. 
He was wearied. And would you note, Paul did not appeal to his own strength. He appealed to the authority of Jesus Christ. He was irked, but he relied on the power of Christ to do something that would both glorify God and deliver this enslaved teenager. Write this down. Satan often goes on the attack after we experience spiritual victory. Lydia and her household are now established in the faith, and so Satan looks for a way to trip up the team. And the evil one continues to do this today. When things are going well, watch out. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your adversary, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring what? Lion, seeking someone to devour. And sometimes Satan will use an outright attack against believers, and we can see it. But his most dangerous strategy is not aggression, but alignment with truth as he subtly looks for ways to knock us off track. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We need to be on our guard so we don't let Satan have a foothold in our individual lives, and we need to be in our guard so Satan does not have a foothold in our church. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, to not be out, we're not outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The devil was trying to derail the proclamation of God's truth, appearing to agree with the truth, as he's attempting to form an alliance and thus gain a position to subvert the message. Now, we don't know with certainty whether this girl was converted, but we do know she was released from bondage. Unfortunately, once her powers of prediction were gone, her owners immediately rejected her. She didn't matter to them at all. Now that she was used up, They didn't have any use for her. You are aware that human trafficking continues today, aren't you? I mean, just ask singer R. Kelly, who was convicted of sex trafficking this week. I reached out to our daughter, Megan, to get a better understanding of this issue. Megan graduated from Moody, and this was her major ministry to victims of sexual exploitation. And for six months, she served at a home for women who've come out of sex trafficking. Here's what Megan writes. When we think of a woman being trapped, our minds tend to go to the image of a woman being in literal chains and physically unable to leave her trafficker. The woman described in Acts may have been under those circumstances, but the women we pass by every day are under more severe manipulation. Their master is often who they call their boyfriend. And when those women are being swayed to do things, they're convinced they do it to show how much they love their man. And while the relationships are incredibly sticky and one-sided, they are trapped in emotional chains. The chains in today's situations are harder to see. Friends, this happens right in the Quad Cities. And listen, if you're in a situation like that, you're like, oh, there's help and there's hope available for you. Listen, have people taken advantage of you? 
Do you feel rejected? Because you can no longer live up to someone else's expectations. If that describes you. Or would you allow Jesus to release you from rejection? You don't have to stay in bondage to your past. Jesus said it this way in John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Oh, would you turn to him in faith right now? Brothers and sisters, look around and see religious people like Lydia. And look around and see those who feel rejected like this teenager. And they need someone to love them just the way they are. And they need a place that is safe and secure. Will God use you to tell them the good news? Now, they may look tough on the outside. They may swear and cuss and act in ways that make you angry. But get this, they are not your enemy. Satan is our enemy. And he is holding people hostage today. Never be surprised when lost people act like lost people. God uses many methods to get his message out. And so when the adversary realized he couldn't align himself with Paul, he goes into attack mode and he awakens some serious opposition. Through some extraordinary circumstances, Paul and Silas are about to have some contact with an ordinary kind of guy. So watch this. The religious woman needed a relationship. With Jesus. The rejected teenager needed to be released from bondage. This regular guy needed to be redeemed. So here's what happened the owners of the slave girl realized that their source of income had dried up, and so they go ballistic. They rile everyone up, they stir up the crowds, they go straight to the magistrates, the guys in charge, and they order Paul and Silas stripped. Let's just linger over that and imagine how humiliating that would be. Verse 23 tells us Paul and Silas were beaten and scourged. By the way, these magistrates were called lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S, which is where we get the term getting your licks in. So this barbaric scourging would have left their backs bloody and raw, their skin shredded, and their muscles like hamburger. These magistrates were so wound up that not only do they beat them, but they they throw them into prison, and they give a command to the jailer to guard them carefully. Let's pick it up, verse 24. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The inner prison was like this dark and dank dungeon where human excrement pooled. No ventilation. It was normally reserved for the worst of criminals. And this jailer, not one to be moved by human suffering, also fastened their feet and possibly their wrists to stocks. 
These stocks held their legs so tightly, it was impossible for them to stand. In fact, they were probably forced to lay on rough stone with their bleeding backs rubbing against gravel and sharp protrusions. This looked like the end of their witness in Philippi. But God had other plans. Notice what Paul and Silas do next. Now, don't, don't just skip over this and go, yeah, that's kind of cool. Ask yourself, would you do that? Would you respond like they did? I mean, they don't scream obscenities like no doubt the other prisoners are doing. They're not complaining. They're not even calling on God to judge their enemies. Oh, check this, verse 25, about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The hymns were likely that section from the book of Psalms, beginning in Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, which means they had those psalms memorized. This is unbelievable. If I were the Apostle Paul, I'd be wondering this. Okay, I had this vision of this man from Macedonia. We made this long trip. We came over to Philippi. We ministered to a group of women and then this rejected teenager. And now we're flat in our backs. We're in stocks in this dark, dank, dirty prison. What gives? That's not how he responded. It says that they were praying and praising The tense in Greek is continuous, meaning they kept on praying and praising. Now, some of you can give testimony to how the Lord has helped you to pray and praise through a really dark time, and some of you are going through it right now, and you're choosing to praise Him. Job experienced that in Job 35.10 when he refers to God giving him songs in the night. That's actually the name of a program that ran on Moody Radio for many years. While Paul and Silas prayed and praised, what were the other prisoners doing? I mean, they're listening. How can they not? In fact, it means they listened intently. Brothers and sisters, never forget, the world watches when we suffer. We say we're Christ followers. They're like, oh yeah, prove it. How do I prove it? By how we respond when problems come. You see, it's at times like this that our faith is often noticed for the very first time. Now, as if their singing at midnight doesn't get their attention, look what God does next. I'm in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This praise concert brought the house down. (laughs) Much like what happened with the Toby Mac concert last night, right, at the tax slayer. The word great here is megas, meaning huge. This is not a little tremor. This is a huge earthquake. The earthquake, the prison shook, the doors opened, and their chains fell off. Well, this caused the jailer to wake up, and he was petrified because for a jailer to lose a prisoner meant he was going to be executed. You lose a prisoner, you lose your life. And so what does he decide to do? Well, he decides to 
off himself. He's like, well, I might as well take my own life. They're going to do it anyway. In verse 28, Paul shouts out, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. Linger on the word all. None of the prisoners left. If you're in prison, wouldn't you leave? Like, get out of there? None of them left. Lights turned on. The jailer falls trembling before Paul and Silas, realizing for the first time that he was a prisoner. When he asked this life-changing question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, the most important question in life is not how can I get a better job or how can I deal with my marriage or how badly are the bears going to get beat this weekend? (laughs) Sorry, I, I couldn't resist. No, here's the ultimate question of life. What must I do to be saved? The word must speaks of urgency. Because apart from Jesus Christ, whether you are religious, whether you've been rejected, or you're just this regular kind of person, you are lost in your sins. Now, perhaps he had heard what the teenager had shouted about salvation. He no doubt heard the praising and the praying, and now he's alarmed about the state of his own soul. Would you observe the little word, I? Well, that makes it clear that this question must be answered personally. We all must answer it. What must I do to be saved? That word do reveals this regular guy believed he had to do something in order to be saved. But the most important, urgent, and personal question of all time is a very simple answer, which has nothing to do with doing and everything to do with believing. Here's the answer. Many of you have it memorized. It's brief, it's simple, and profound. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be what? Saved, you and your household. I like how the Amplified Bible renders this verse. Believe in and on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, give yourself up to him. Take yourself out of your own keeping and trust yourself into his keeping and you will be saved. Now, to believe is more than just giving intellectual agreement. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. And it's more than just emotional assent, just having some good feelings about God. No, belief must involve the will. The word believe means to cling to, to rely on and to trust in. Salvation is not a DIY project. If you want to go to heaven, the first step is to stop trying to earn your way there. Stop trying. Start trusting if you want to be saved from your sins. We could write it in very big letters. When it comes to saving your soul, works don't work because being good is never good enough. And if God doesn't want our works, then what does he want from us? Well, he wants us to trust him. In the Bible, the the words faith, trust, and belief all come from the same general word, which means to lean wholly upon. 
as when you lie down on a bed, trusting that that bed is going to hold you. You rest your whole weight on it. And so commitment refers to the action part of faith. And once you fully rely on Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Do you see that there? It's not a maybe not a hope so. It's not like, oh, i got to stop swearing. i got to stop doing this. And then maybe, well, I hope I get in. No, you believe. And when you're saved, you are saved. It's a done deal. And it happens instantly the moment you believe in and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. After being saved, his whole family came to faith. And would you note, he gets dunked as well. He gets baptized. He opens his home for hospitality. And now what does he do? He cleans the wounds of Paul and Silas. He didn't clean them before. He just threw them in prison. God uses many methods to get his message out. So let me circle back around to how these three individuals represent the religious, the rejected, and the regular. I'm going to offer a suggested method that God might want to use in our lives for each one, and then I'm going to follow that with a brief testimony from an Edgewood member. So let's focus on reaching the religious. How do we do that? Well, focus on spiritual conversations. If they're religious, they're used to having spiritual conversations, and then call for conversion. One longtime Edgewood member posted this. My family line goes back to Edgewood. I was taught by some godly ladies in my younger years. I was given the plan of salvation and accepted Christ as my Savior at eight years old. So just being in church is not enough. She came to a point where she was saved. Secondly, well, how do we reach the rejected? Figure out a way to get close and provide care. One Edgewood member wrote these words, I had gotten in some trouble. I lost my job and was arrested. Pastor Tim reached out to me. I was saved with him in his office. Did you catch that? This individual who was arrested didn't reach out to Pastor Tim. Tim heard about it, reached out to that individual. Is there someone God wants you to reach out to? You're like, well, that's hard, that's awkward. Yes, it is. How about reaching the regular? Ooh, this is hard for us. Because most of us are pretty good at complaining, aren't we? Live out your faith with joy, especially when going through trials. Listen to how one person (laughs) was saved while she watched someone at work. She writes this, I worked at a bank for several years. My personal life was a mess. God stuck me in the drive up for two hours every afternoon with a guy who just happened to be a Christian. He witnessed to me every day, telling me all about God in Edgewood. One day he asked me if I knew where I would go if I died that day. I began to cry because I knew. He told me how to accept Christ, and I did it that very hour in the bathroom at the bank. (laughs) 
Friend, if you want God to give you gospel conversations, may I suggest each of us pray a prayer like this and pray it every day. Lord, give me the means and the method to share the message of the gospel with one person today. Pray that prayer and then look and watch to see how God's going to answer that. On Tuesday, I asked the staff and deacon teams to share what methods God used to bring each of them to Christ. By the time we were finished, I had tears in my eyes. Let me just read the list. A co-worker, a sergeant in the army, a pretty young woman who's now my wife, men who lived out their faith, a Sunday school teacher, a college friend, church, my brother's conversion, my grandpa and family camps, a sermon on Revelation, a praying wife, a church service, kids' church, Awana, bus ministry, family influence, a Christian illusionist, my Christian school teacher, my mom, and an invitation at the end of a church service. God reached me through my college roommate 42 years ago today. Now here are seven recurring themes I wrote down. We do well to cultivate them. Relationship, hospitality, intentionality, faith in the home, children's ministry, worship services, and invitations. And I want to give an invitation right now for you to repent and receive Christ if you have never done so. Would you close your eyes? You could pray something like this, Lord Jesus, for far too long, I've kept you out of my life. I admit that I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. And I don't want to just go through the religious motions anymore. And I'm tired of feeling rejected. And I recognize that Well, just by being a regular kind of person, that isn't good enough. And so I repent of my sins. I change my mind about the way I've been living. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth. And with all my heart, I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and you rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. I repent of my sins. I receive you now as my Savior and I surrender to your lordship, your leadership in my life. Make me into the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone pray that prayer today for the first time and you would have the courage just to slip up your hand so we can rejoice with you? We're going to transition now to communion, and I think of two words that make up the word communion. Common union. We've all come to Christ in different ways, but what we have in common is our union with Christ. Think of those who made up the church in Philippi. So you have this religious woman who's a professional from Asia who was seeking Christ. Now, we don't know for sure if she was converted, but imagine that she gathered in this church. The rejected girl was a trafficked teenager from Greece who had been controlled by Satan. And this regular guy was a blue-collar worker from Rome who was entirely secular in his outlook. God uses many methods to get his message out. Don't you love how God reaches people from different places, different classes, backgrounds, gender, race, age, and enfolds them into the church? Paul declares this strongly in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus.